Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Well, here we are. It is the first show and the first week of 2024. A mysterious year. Who knows what it's going to bring. But you know, if we rely on history, which obviously I'm big on telling you about in every show, we can pretty much figure it out because history repeats it rhymes and repeats. And today, because we are 10 months away from a really, really critical election on all sorts of levels, I'm going to bring to you again the story of the Constitution, the history of the Constitution of the United States. You know, that persnickety document that progressives, communists, and globalists abhor and that we love. That document that enshrines and protects our rights and mandates our government to protect those rights which obviously right now they are doing a poor job of intentionally. But if you're going to rise and fight, if you're going to make the elections count, if you're going to make your voices heard, and you're going to learn how to say, no, I will not comply, just use that word no, you know, no, the finest word in the English language, then it's important that you understand what exactly we are standing up for and fighting for. And it is about those concepts espoused in the Declaration of Independence. Think back to my show of a few weeks ago on the rightsideradio.com and the Constitution, which enshrines those rights that Jefferson so nobly wrote of in the Declaration. And then, of course, I will tell you the rest of the story of the Constitution of the United States of America. And then I'm going to bring you another little chapter, shall we say, on personal financial preparedness. I think you'll find this interesting. You might not have even thought of some of these little items. And over the coming weeks, we're going to review again and update you on those little financial preparedness segments that we've done for you. Crypto, precious metals, real estate, both residential and land, tangible assets, folks, tangible assets. And then, of course, we're going to have our rat-a-tat-tat, which unfortunately has not been much the last few weeks with all the helter-skelter and goings-on. Time has not allowed, but this show will allow some catch-up. On a whole bunch of fronts, from COVID to happenings in the court to international happenings, which are occurring almost by the hour now, and which do and will affect your life, your security, your property, your finances, and your family, and perhaps, unless played perfectly, your freedom. So without further ado, because I think it's so apropos, this quote, let's go to a quote from the founders, shall we, as we start every show? And this quote is from George Washington. So, so fitting for this election year. Quote, however, political parties may now and then answer popular ends, They are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men 
will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of the government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion, unquote, George Washington. Well, we see that playing out before our eyes, do we not? And now the ranch story, which unfortunately time did not even permit for me to bring your way last week, but I think this story will make up for it. This is actually a story of the traveling rancher, because I'm on the road visiting some relatives, my mom and my sis, and we all got together, and it's been great. But you know, this is in kind of a blue area, maybe a blue-blue area. And I went down to the local grocery store, which, by the way, was swamped. I mean, it was just a zoo. And I have a story to kind of tell you about that. So my mother needed a prescription picked up and I volunteered to do that. And since the place was a zoo, you can imagine that the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve, the line to the pharmacy was a zoo. Oh, yes, it was. And I'm standing in line there, and the two people in front of me have masks, and the two people behind me have masks, and a whole bunch of people in the store have masks. And I'm looking around kind of in wonderment and some amusement, and I finally couldn't contain myself any longer, and I turned around to the gal behind me, I'd say late 30s, early 40s, and she kind of looked like she was a denizen of the area, if you know what I mean. And I said in a very innocent and questioning voice, wow, how come everybody's wearing masks around here? And she looked at me over the top of her mask, big wide eyes, very earnest, and said, because COVID's coming back. I said, really, it is? You know, feigning, or maybe not feigning stupidity. She goes, oh, yes, it is. In fact, I work at the hospital, and two of my family members came down with COVID last week. And I kind of feigned surprise and arched my eyebrows underneath the brim of my cowboy hat and said, they did? Oh, that's horrible. Did they get vaccinated? She looked at me very solemnly very seriously. She said, well, of course they did. They even got all their boosters. I said, really? Oh, well, that's that's just a shame. <laughs> and I tried not to kind of chortle as I'm chortling right now. I did not when I was talking to her, but I tried not to chortle. I turned around, minded my business, got the stuff done, and exited the store as fast as I could. But the moral of this story from this Hayseed's common sense point of view is that progressives have a very, very difficult time connecting A to B and knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And now let's talk about our Constitution, shall we? The Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation, and though this is not widely discussed, from the time of the end of the Revolutionary War and America's independence, the surrender at Yorktown by Cornwallis, the 13 colonies, or states as they were then known, were governed by a rather loose federal, quote-unquote, confederation. And the confederation was so loose and lacked so much power that it could barely make decisions to govern the 13 states as a whole. It could not really raise an army. It had no power to levy taxes, which might have been a good thing. But in other words, it could not generate revenues to sustain its governing capabilities. It had no authority to interfere with the increasingly rancorous squabbles between the various states over trade and commerce and all sorts of things. And America at that point in time, literally 1885-1886, was on the point of breaking up into 13 countries. That's how rancorous the arguments and disputes had become between the states. And the Confederation was powerless. Some of the original founders managed to concoct a scheme, thankfully, to gather a convention of delegates 
which was originally called to reform the Articles of Confederation. In other words, to rewrite, to patch up, to fix what was wrong in those articles. But that convention actually became a convention to throw out the articles and to replace it with the Constitution. The Constitution was written during the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 55 delegates and the rancor, at first at least, that had been growing amongst the states spilled out into the convention, which, by the way, was conducted completely outside the public view, completely behind closed doors with armed guards. Delegates from the small and large states disagreed over whether the number of representatives in the new federal legislature should be the same for each state, like it was under the Articles of Confederation, or different depending on a state's population. Some of the northern states wanted to abolish slavery or to make representation dependent on the size only of a state's free population. And of course, the southern delegates threatened to abandon the convention if their demands to keep slavery and the slave trade legal and to count slaves for representation purposes were not met. It was the Connecticut delegation that put forth a proposal which came to be known as the Great Compromise, and it created a bicameral in other words, a kind of dual legislature at the federal level with a Senate in which all the states would be equally represented, two senators per state, and a House of Representatives in which representation would be apportioned on the basis of the state's free population plus three-fifths of its enslaved population. A further compromise on slavery to keep the southern states at the convention at all was that the delegates agreed that Congress would be prohibited from banning the importation of slaves until 1808. That's Article 1, Section 9. The Constitution was molded by several different committees, one of whom worked on form, one of whom worked on content, and when it was finally ready to go, 39 delegates signed that Constitution on September 17, 1787, and it was submitted for ratification to the 13 states on September 28th. Ironically, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were, respectively, on ambassadorship to Great Britain and to France, and they did not sign the Constitution. One of the real plums that the delegates wanted to get to sign in terms of the states was New York, and New York was having none of this. In fact, in the end, not all the states signed the Constitution. In an effort to persuade New York to ratify the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison published a series of essays on the Constitution and Republican government in New York newspapers. Their work was written under the pseudonym of Publius, P-U-B-L-I-U-S, and it was eventually collected and published in a book known as The Federalist. So now you know where the Federalist Papers came from. It was published in 1788, and it was kind of the exposition and defense of the Constitution. In June of 1788, the Constitution had been ratified by nine states, which was the requirement for it to go into effect. Article 7 of the Constitution. And Congress set March 4, 1789 as a date for the new government to commence proceedings, i.e. the first elections, which actually were held a little early in 1788. The holdout states, and everybody wanted all the states to sign, obviously, were holding out because they were concerned that the Constitution did not specify the rights of individual Americans. And that led us, eventually, to the Bill of Rights, right? Constitutional Amendments 1 through 10, which, by the way, were originally proposed as 12 amendments in 1789. Ten were ratified by all 13 states, and their adoption was certified on December 15, 1791. Next week, we're going to examine what the Bill of Rights is, how it evolved, 
what it means to you as an American, as a human being with inalienable rights, and what the government is doing to undermine those rights. You should note that the authors of the Constitution were really heavily influenced by the country's experience on the Articles of, of Confederation. And that document had attempted to retain as much independence and sovereignty for the states as possible and to assign to the central government, the federal government, only those nationally important functions that the states could not handle individually. But the rancor between the states and the government's inability to act during an armed uprising called the Shays Rebellion, 1786 and 87 in Massachusetts, is what kind of prompted the whole constitutional convention to begin with and the end product which was the Constitution. And the Constitution, as finally constructed, granted the federal government certain essential powers, direct taxation, and the ability to regulate interstate commerce, as just two examples. Because the framers of the Constitution were especially concerned with limiting the power of government and securing the liberty of individual Americans, they came up with the doctrine of legislative, executive, and judicial separation of powers, right, the three branches of government. And they formed it in a very almost antagonistic fashion of checks and balances, which you are certainly seeing playing out today. And they tried their best to strike a balance between liberty and authority. In a nutshell, and by the way, the link to the Constitution itself, and if you haven't read it lately, or you've never read it, heaven forbid, you should really read it. You know, it's only three pages. It's only three pages, folks, that form the foundation of all law, order, and freedom in the United States, and how various government entities and jurisdictions interact between themselves. Three pages. They're rather brilliant. That link, by the way, is in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage on the rightsideradio.com. In a nutshell, the Constitution organizes the country's basic political institutions. The main text comprises seven articles. Article 1 vests all the legislative powers in Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Each state is entitled to two senators, as you know. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal, and obviously I've done a pile of research on this little series of personal financial preparedness I'm bringing you. And in doing so, I looked at a bunch of precious metal dealers. There's a bunch of them out there. Some are very good, but I think one of the very best, BBB, A-plus rated, five-star rated, is Harvard Gold Group. They have a terrific private direct delivery program, your house, your business, your investment accounts. They can help you set up your investment accounts to hold these metals. I negotiated, by the way, a $250 discount on your first order through them, which I think is kind of cool. And they have a lowest price guarantee, whether it's gold or silver, and they will be happy to talk to you about that and how it works. So call them, 844-977-GOLD, or go to their website, harvardgoldgroup.com, and use the code READ, READ, that's me, to get your $250 discount and some other goodies. Are you a fan of the 1883 miniseries? Then you will love its partial inspiration, Threads West, an American saga. The number one national Amazon and Barnes & Noble best-selling multi-generational epic saga of the American story in the West. Recipient of a whopping 37 national awards, including Best Historical Fiction, Best Multicultural Fiction, Best Fiction Series, Best Romance, and Best Western. You will recognize the characters that live in these pages. They are you. They are us. This is not only their story, it is our story. 
story. Threads West is written by Wyoming rancher Reed Lance Rosenthal. Lois Henderson, Chief AD Library Information Services, proclaims fluent and strong, sensual, evocative, and unforgettable. Compared to McMurtry's Pulitzer Prize-winning Lonesome Dove and Michener's Centennial, Rosenthal's epic masterpiece will rival even some of Louis La Amour's best-loved work. Call the Gone with the Wind of the West and Sackets on Steroids. Get it now. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Kindle, Nook, Audible, or the publisher, ThreadsWestSeries.com. What you might not know is that originally, the senators were elected by the state legislatures. It was only later, decades later, that there was an amendment to the Constitution passed, which we're going to talk about next week, that allowed for direct votes to elect senators. It set the terms for the House, two years, senators, six years. And the powers that were delegated to Congress to levy taxes, borrow money, regulate interstate commerce, provide for military forces, declare war, and determine member seating and rules of procedure. And, by the way, impeachment proceedings. My, we've heard that word a lot in the last few years. Article 2 is about the executive branch, right? The presidency and what has become the morass and entourage and never-ending agency, bureaucrat, riddled, overweight portion of the government. And the Constitution sets forth the Electoral College, which, of course, Democratic Marxists hate. And the Constitution does not give the president a lot of power, certainly not the power that presidents have been exercising over the past few years. The power that was delegated, specifically, was commander-in-chief of the armed forces, negotiating treaties, but two-thirds of the Senate had to concur with any treaty. And of course, that's being circumvented, I'm digressing for just a moment, with like the United Nations Small Arms Treaty and the WHO Pandemic Treaty and the Iran nonsense deal, which we're going to talk a little bit about in Rat-a-tat-tat. It did afford the president kind of really significant appointment powers, members of the federal judiciary, the judges, and the cabinet, all subject, however, to advice and consent, i.e. majority approval, of the Senate. That's Article 2. It's interesting to note that originally presidents were eligible for continual re-election. I mean, they could serve for life if they could get elected. But the 22nd Amendment in 1951 prohibited any person from being elected president more than twice, with a four-year term of each election, of course. There's a variety of historical and technological factors. The centralization of power in the executive branch during war, television, the internet, you name it, which have, without the blessing of the Constitution, increased the responsibilities of the office to embrace a whole bunch of other aspects of political leadership and bureaucratic power. Article 3 is the article that places the judicial power of the government in the hands of the court. The Constitution is clear that it is to be interpreted by the courts and that the Supreme Court of the United States is the final court, that is the end game, of appeal from state and lower federal courts. By the way, the power of American courts to rule on the constitutionality of laws which is known as judicial review, is held by very few other courts in the world. And it is not, this is really interesting, explicitly granted in the Constitution. The principle of judicial review was first asserted by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. Go back to my history of the Supreme Court. I think it was a two-part series, and it was about a year, year and a half ago or so. I think you'll find it fascinating. I talk about these cases, in fact. But Marbury versus Madison, 1803, this was a huge case. It really determined the fate and the power of the Supreme Court going further. And the court ruled that it, in other words, it was ruling on its own power, that it had the authority to void any national or state law. Unfortunately, as we are all painfully aware, Congress on many occasions has given new scope 
to the Constitution through statutes, most of them probably unconstitutional. Like, you know, creating executive departments, think of that morass, right? The EPA, Homeland Security, you know, uh, the Justice Department, now you can go on and on down the list, it's, it makes you wretch. Congress has tried and is trying now to be involved in the federal courts. Congress basically passes everything to do with anything in the territories and the states. And they set up the executive budget system, which, of course, none of them follow or even bother to put together. There are some practices which occur kind of outside the actual letter of the Constitution, kind of based on custom and usage. And these are called constitutional elements, like the political parties, presidential nomination procedures, and the conduction of election campaigns. Article 4 deals with the relations between the states and the privileges of the citizens of the states. This includes like the full faith and credit wording that you've heard about and requires states to recognize the official acts and the judicial proceedings of other states. In other words, get along in the sandbox, kids. And it includes the requirement that each state provide citizens from other states with all, no exception, of the privileges and immunities that are afforded the citizens of that state. And it guarantees a Republican, i.e. Representative Republic, form of government for each state. Article 5 talks about the procedures for amending the Constitution. That's some interesting stuff here when we get to the rest of the story. Amendments can be proposed by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress, or by a convention called by Congress, or the application for a convention to propose amendments if called for by the legislatures of two-thirds of the state. You know the Convention of States stuff which is going around? This is based on this constitutional principle in Article 5. When there is an amendment that is agreed upon, not agreed upon in terms of everybody agrees to the amendment, but agreed that it's far enough along it should be submitted for ratification, it has to be ratified by either three-quarters of the state legislatures or by conventions, i.e. the Convention of States, in as many states, or by a 75% vote of both houses of Congress. Article 6 which prohibits religious tests for office holders, deals with public debts and the supremacy of the Constitution. And this is where the words would cite the document itself as the, quote, supreme law of the land, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding, unquote. And Article 7, as I previously discussed with you, stipulated the Constitution would become operational after being ratified by nine states. Here's a really, really, really important part of the Constitution. It was part of the compromise that grew out of the contentious behavior of the states toward one another during the Confederation. And it was solidified in the Bill of Rights, which we're going to talk about next week, the Tenth Amendment. So any national powers, right, that's Article One, are enumerated. The state powers are not enumerated anywhere in the Constitution. Very clever. Which creates... In effect and reality, a system whereby any powers not expressly granted to the federal government are powers that automatically are retained and may be exercised by the states. I can't tell you how critical this is at this particular point in American history. And Congress's power was further expanded, not only to what was stated in the Constitution, but what was known as the implied power. And that was also established by Chief Justice Marshall. That case was McCullough versus Maryland in 1819. Again, listen to the history of the Supreme Court on the rightsideradio.com. However, the issues of national versus state power are ongoing. 
it's kind of like that uneasy partial friend, partial adversary relationship between the three branches of government. And the federal grab for power has expanded through the courts otherwise or simply through acts not contested. This is why it's so important. If you have a claim, bring it. If you have a dispute, dispute. Stand up. The erosion of rights are incremental. And once lost, it is very difficult to get them back. That in a nutshell, because we could go on for... I love talking about this stuff. We could go on for shows and shows and shows on the Constitution and all the drama that ensued in the Confederation that preceded the Representative Republic, which was formed by the Constitution, that led up to the Constitutional Convention, which was originally billed as... A reform convention for the Articles of Confederation. There was a little bait and switch there. But I think you will be very impressed by this three-page document. Go to that link on the rightsideradio.com upper right homepage. And now for the rest of the story. Because, you know, in these major historical stories, there's always these delicious nuggets, which really make you kind of shake your head and, you know, rub your eyes and go, wow, that's amazing. So the first thing I told you was that neither Jefferson nor Adams signed the Constitution because they were overseas. Remember in the story last week about the Declaration of Independence, once again, I urge you to listen to it if you have not, those two men, bitter adversaries for virtually their entire careers, died on the same day, which was July 4th. Remarkable. And both of those men were really the only ones of the founders, the original founders of the Declaration of Independence that were still alive at that time, not killed by natural causes or the British who did not sign the Constitution. It's amazing. The U.S. Constitution, by the way, was written in the same Pennsylvania State House where that Declaration of Independence was signed and where George Washington received his commission as commander of the Continental Army. It's called Independence Hall and still stands today, right across from the National Constitution Center. Established on November 26, 1789, by edict of George Washington, we had our first Thanksgiving. Now, everybody thinks... You know, they go with this fairy tale that this is about the pilgrims and the Indians. No, it wasn't. George Washington designated that day as a Thanksgiving day, giving thanks for the Constitution being written and ratified. At 81 years old, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania was the oldest delegate at the Constitutional Convention. And at the tender young age of 26, a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey was the youngest. The very original Constitution was on display at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., but when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, it was moved to Fort Knox for safekeeping. This is fascinating. More than 11,000, that's 11,000, amendments have been introduced in Congress. Only 33 have made it to the states to be ratified, and only 27 in 230-plus years. Out of 11,000 proposed amendments, only 27 have received the necessary approval from the states to actually become amendments to the Constitution. And last but not least, the United States Constitution is the shortest, i.e. three pages, Constitution on the planet Earth. It is also the longest surviving Constitution on the planet Earth. And it is up to us, folks, to make sure that it remains so. So now you have the rest of the story. Why am I doing this Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights? Kind of little sequence for you. The history of those incredible founding documents. Because, folks, unless you know what you have, you won't understand what you are about to lose. And there's only one way you're not going to lose it, and that's to get off the couch. I mean, what does it take to piss you off? 
the border? How about the money that's coming from your taxpayer wallet and going out to fund leftist groups and Ukraine and all sorts of other woke nonsense? How about the trans movement? How about education and indoctrination of your children? How about child trafficking? How about the fraud and abuse in the Defense Department? How about the incessant, incredible, unwavering lies your government tells you about everything? How about the fact your government is basically trying to kill you with food, GMO, untested, (laughs) known to have side effect jabs, and to manipulate your mind through PSYOPs? Listen to my five PSYOPs shows on therightsideradio.com, the history of PSYOPs. What is it going to take? I suggest you maybe watch a few less football games, those of you that do, and you spend those hours at your local community on the political level, writing your senators, writing your congressmen, or calling their offices, and sending money to the outfits who are protecting your rights like judicialwatch.org or the candidates of your choice. That might be far more beneficial than watching the woke NFL issue jab and mass mandates and condone athletes kneeling for the national anthem. What do you think? And you know, folks, to protect the Constitution requires the right mindset. It requires physical health, at least the best you can be. And it requires preparedness, both physical, which we've discussed, and financial. If you have to depend on the government for your bread, for your food, for your shelter, and for your heat, then you are far less likely to stand for your rights, which that very same government is trying to take from you. Remember that we have a financial preparedness page, all sorts of great videos from real experts in various fields, and articles for you upper right-hand side on the rightsideradio.com homepage. And you should be checking that every week because we're adding to it every week. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about housing. You are hearing the hype from everybody, you know, the price of homes has gone up despite it's solid, the markets are great, yada, yada, yada. I've been trying to bring you the real information, as have some others on the web. There's a great video by one of those others, Saks Realty, on the preparedness page. May I suggest you watch it. It might be under Rat-a-tat-tat and Family Safety also. And several other terrific videos posted this week on various aspects of local and global finances, which, trust me, affect you each and every day and will affect you more so in the unfortunate times to come. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal, and obviously I've done a pile of research on this little series of personal financial preparedness I'm bringing you. And in doing so, I looked at a bunch of precious metal dealers. There's a bunch of them out there. Some are very good, but I think one of the very best, BBB, A-plus rated, five-star rated, is Harvard Gold Group. They have a terrific private direct delivery program, your house, your business, your investment accounts. They can help you set up your investment accounts to hold these metals. I negotiated, by the way, a $250 discount on your first order through them, which I think is kind of cool. And they have a lowest price guarantee, whether it's gold or silver, and they will be happy to talk to you about that and how it works. So call them, 844-977-GOLD, or go to their website, harvardgoldgroup.com, and use the code READ, READ, that's me, to get your $250 discount and some other goodies. Hey listeners, this is Reed Lance Rosenthal, your host of On the Right Side Radio, and I have a message for you. Do you want a business? Sell a product? Provide a service? Have a message you want to get out? 
Do you believe in freedom, the Constitution, and America? Here's your opportunity to reach 69 million sets of ears in scores of markets around the country, including five of the top 10 and 15 of the top 50 markets in the United States of America. Very affordable, very flexible, 30 and 60 second packages available. Give your business a boost and help America get the truth. Call Francis at Media Airtime at 602-300-8250, 602-300-8250, or write Francis at MediaAirtime.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S at MediaAirtime.com. Thank you. So folks, financial preparedness intertwines, it dovetails with physical preparedness. Because in terms of physicality, in terms of physical safety, you need defense, you need fuel, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, which of course gives you heat, and protection against the elements. Well, if the worst occurs, the dollar is decimated. Some geopolitical event grinds the economy to an abrupt halt. The government advents its long-heralded and the government hopes soon implemented, CBDC to try and control every aspect of your life, finances, purchases. Then a good portion of this economy, and history has shown throughout the ages, we're talking five or 6,000 years, that barter will become paramount. What do you have that you can barter for something you need? Obviously, if you have a skill, that's more than helpful. But there's material things that you want to have on hand. And many people don't think of how simple these are. Look around your house. What are the things that you need often or more than occasionally, which are critical to various aspects of your life, of your residence, of your shelter, of your food, of your fuel? And which of those things, because there's no sense throwing money out the window, it's way too, <laughs> this is the wrong term, valuable now. What things will everybody need, and literally, I mean everybody, from time to time, which they will not be able to get if SHTF, the caca, hits the fan? And what of those things can you use yourself if you never have to barter them? Which, of course, would be the best scenario. How about nails? Pretty simple, right? They will be in big demand. The same with screws and nuts and bolts and washers. All those types of fastening materials. They don't decay. They don't go away. They have no shelf life. They can be used forever. And everybody needs them for all sorts of sundry things. And worst comes to worst. You never have to barter them. Over time, you'll use them yourself. What's another thing? How about ammunition? Now, we all know what the government is trying to do to the flow and production of ammunition and your ability to buy it. I mean, look at what some of the states are doing, like California proposing a background check to buy ammunition. Other states back east trying to limit the amount of ammunition you can purchase at one time or in a certain time period. And obviously, ammunition is rather critical to defense. You know, the Second Amendment of that Constitution we spoke about earlier in the show. And for those of you who are armed, and I assume most of you are, obviously buying ammunition you can use in your own weaponry is great. But for barter purposes, you want to make sure you are focused on the most prevalent ammunitions. 3030, 556 NATO, 223-308. Do a little research. Find out what the most used calibers of ammunition are in your area. I would imagine most of them will stack up with what you have in your firearm safe or closet or rack. Number three, tools. Tools will be in huge demand when the caca hits the fan. 
and being able to get them from the sources that we've become used to for the last hundred years will be next to impossible for all sorts of reasons. Hammers, saws, axes, screwdrivers, pliers. These are all things you can use around your own home and instead of having one, have two or three. They're never going to go bad. Worst comes to worst, you can give them as Christmas presents to friends 10 years from now and laugh at that hayseed from Wyoming who is sounding the alarm about having them for barter. And some basic items of clothing, socks. Where do you think you're going to get socks if there is no supply chain? Agriculture is on its butt. Manufacturing has dwindled to nothing, and etc. You think the weather's going to stop? Do you think that your toenails are going to stop, stop growing? And the nice thing about socks is, you know, if you have a lot of pairs, you don't have to wash them every week. <laughs> you can just make one big pile and do it all at once. But you'd be surprised. They might come in handy for other purposes some point in the future. And the same with some other little articles of clothing. Gloves, for instance. Items of warm clothing. I know many of you kind of clean out your closets so once a year or once every five years and you donate to Goodwill. And you know what? That's great. Maybe you ought to think about putting them in a box nicely packed as trade fodder for some future event. If future event X or Y does not occur, great. Goodwill will still be here. And then there's the more obvious. Obviously, food. Particularly for those who have a garden, who can, who preserve, who have a dehydrator or a smoker. That's a perennial barter item. And the nice thing about doing those types of things is, well, if you don't need to barter them, then you can always eat them yourself. And there's a host of other things, day-to-day, -day, household, that all flow back to basics, the needs, the things you must have to survive and thrive. Look around your home. Think about what you use. Think about what is non-degradable, what can be used by you over the course of time or in the future in all sorts of various ways. And it might be a good idea to stockpile some of those items, just in case. And I want to speak a little bit about one item I left off when we were talking about financial preparedness as it relates to land and location. The right community, the right state, the right county, the right politics, the right fiscal attitudes, the right American attitudes. And that is the school board. And not just in an educational sense. But in a fiscal sense, how is the funding of the schools? Are they operating at least kind of break even or a little bit in the red or a little bit in the black? Or are they totally underwater as in many blue municipalities, blue county areas in those blue regions of the United States, which, you know, are slowly sinking into the abyss of hell? And now, how about some rat-a-tat-tat <laughs> to rattle your eyeballs and scramble your brains? Back to COVID. <laughs> Back to Big Pharma's liability and the government's liability. There's another study out, and these researchers found, listen to this, nearly all patients, that's all patients who got the jab, suffered some cardiac injury. And this was published in the Journal of Radiology. By the way, the study talks about asymptomatic myocardial inflammation, which, by the way, is kind of the new name they put in for subclinical myocarditis. 
And in further COVID news, did you know that since September 22nd, folks, that's like, uh, you know, six weeks ago, give or take, one of two pilots on Ryanair flight London to Redsco, Poland, became, quote-unquote, incapacitated. You know, that's the new lingo. Not a sudden brief illness, not an unexplained da-da-da, not, you know, whatever. It's incapacitated. That was November 26th. November 20th, a pilot becomes incapacitated on air transat flight from Toronto to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. He was replaced, by the way, by one of the 299 passengers on the plane who happened to also be a pilot. November 16th, 2023, Air India pilot Captain Himanal Kumar, 37 years old, had a sudden fatal heart attack while he was taking a training course at the airport. Quote, all his past medical assessments were fine with no detected underlying medical conditions, unquote. October 30th, Jet 2 flight, Manchester to Dalaman, Turkey. The first officer, i.e. the co-pilot, became incapacitated. October 18th, 2023, Austrian Airlines pilot, by the way, part of the mountain rescue team in Austria, right? Rugged guy. Christian Zimmerbrainer, 43, died suddenly after a brief quote-unquote serious illness, unquote. That's it. Nothing more said about it. September 24th, 2023, Austrian Airlines flight, Stuttgart to Vienna. The captain becomes incapacitated. The first officer took over. September 23rd, 2023, Alaska Airlines pilot Captain Eric McRae, 37 years old, died suddenly in his hotel room during a layover. He was scheduled to fly that that morning. By the way, his wife is an Alaskan flight attendant and he has two small kids, toddler and a newborn. September 22nd, 2023, Delta flight over Canada, Paris to Los Angeles. The pilot becomes, oh, medically incapacitated. Over the next few weeks, I've been telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend about 15 minutes and I'm going to go through all the celebrities, all the names that you will recognize. This is not, you know, the teeming masses now. This is, you know, upper echelon, upper crust folks, many of them huge proponents of the jab who have become incapacitated, as in died suddenly and mysteriously and after a brief illness and no known conditions. And I can, it's like exactly the same. And you're going to be shocked. I mean, I'm going to rattle off, I don't know, 100 names and brief descriptions of who they are, although you'll probably know them in 15 minutes. This is just over the last 90 days, folks. And it's the tip of the iceberg. These are the people whose names you should know that get mentioned. And here's an ironic chuckle for you. For our closed-door hearing, Russia's Supreme Court ruled on a lawsuit that was brought by Russia's Ministry of Justice, and they ruled that the LGBTQ movement was, quote, an extremist organization and banned it. And of course, people are hysterical. Oh, but, but they aren't. They aren't. Hmm. I wonder why that is. And by the way, the law does not ban gay people. It criminalizes gay activists. Shall we say folks who differ from the sexual norm who are more activists, vocal, and nasty than simply exercising their First Amendment rights? Not that you have a First Amendment in Russia. And Russia expressed, you know, in this lawsuit, particular concern over activism being funded or connected with international groups outside of Russia. Oh, you mean this cancer is like spreading everywhere? Uh, you know, Marxist ideology, which is exactly what this is. And you know that infrastructure bill that was passed? It's going to provide all these jobs and all this infrastructure. Fix the bumpy roads. Of course it was. Well, just a third of that $1.2 trillion out of our pocket from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I mean, they come up with great PSYOPs names. Went toward highways, roads, and bridges. Penn Wharton. 
pretty good business outfit. Their budget model now says that the bill, quote, will have no significant effect on GDP by the end of the budget window 2031 or in the long run 2050, unquote. How are we sold that bill? Oh, yes, by statements that are exactly the opposite of that. And although they didn't tell us at the time, guess what the bill did kind of after the passage, you know, through the loopholes? It sweetened the tax credit for qualifying EVs, excluding Teslas, because, you know, Elon Musk has a big mouth. We don't like him. And that's under the Inflation Reduction Act. So basically, the government is subsidizing wealthy owners of vehicles who produce no gas tax revenue for the dwindling highway trust fund, the HTF. And guess what? You'll never believe this. How could this happen? No one should be surprised, folks, that the Treasury Department is calling for another general fund bailout for the insolvent, the HTF, the Highway Trust Fund, which builds roads that EVs drive on, of course. You just got to love it, don't you? In education, you know, the fight has begun there. And it's going relatively well in many, but not all areas. In the public schools, in school choice, the ability of people to take vouchers equal to the tax dollars that would have been spent on their kid and instead put them in a charter school, put them in a private school. In other words, choose an alternative form of education other than woke and failing public schools. But this is going to continue to be an uphill battle, particularly at the collegiate level. You've seen what's happening on the universities. You've seen this scandal at Harvard. I brought you a story two, three weeks ago, look it up in the archives, on the amount of money these top ten schools, never mind all the rest. But I think you'll see the battle continuing on that front. I think you're going to see more school boards ousted, more control by parents over curriculum. You know, you domestic terrorists, you parents. And you can kind of feel the ship trying to change course. A ship, I might add, that has sailed for the last 40 years right under our nose, and we've been oblivious to it. So, in a way, when you see those kids out there in the street chanting, death to Israel, you know, long live Hamas, guess who's to blame? We are. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, go to ontherightsideradio.com. Click on Show Archives, and you'll find all of Reed's shows and a terrific array of informative articles, videos, and reference pages. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of On the Right Side Radio with Reed Lance Rosenthal.